we have a good time. Get to have a little drink, yep. drinky drink, and uh, but I've never relax. Uh, man, I've been. This is I've pulled a John this week for sure, and that's why I'm saying that I'm could like, mean many things. Uh, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. But, so, what kind of John? Did you well, pull? which John did I pull? That's a good question. I think this is John number. 272. Is there such a thing as a Johnism? There, yeah, there's a whole book of them. The book oh. of John. The book of John. <laughs> <laughs> I know I, uh, I just got into a situation where I have too, too many, too many, too much work happened at once. And I've got deadlines. And so I think it was night before last, I worked until 1.30 in the morning and then went to bed, got up at 5, was back up here at 5, about 5.45. And that's when I saw the sunset <clears throat> or sunrise. Same difference. Uh, got got a better sleep last night, but still, I'm like still not restored, and I'm I still have like oh my gosh, I have demo on one thing tomorrow, demo on another thing Friday, and so just working towards that. And of course, like none of it's done, so <laughs> lot to do. And so I've again another week where I do almost no prep for the show. So it's just uh, yeah, we're winging it. Unfortunately, you did some prep, so that's good. I do have a few things just. Uh, quick, quick deals, but let's get into your some news or what? Um, yeah, there is one news item, and it's really not germane, but other than just to say that one of Benioff's friends and allies has uh, passed away suddenly. That would be uh, yeah. the mayor of San Francisco, Ed Lee. I heard about that. Is it yeah. was is he was he the acting mayor? Was he like the mayor? Oh yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure if because I, I I wasn't sure if he was like like a previous mayor and then passed, or if he was the mayor and now they're oh. having to do. Yeah, current mayor. So I don't, okay. I'm not sure what the process is. Who? I mean, it's probably like the the mayor pro tem or whatever mm-hmm. steps in. Um, I guess. But yeah, just you know, out of nowhere, I think he had a heart attack or something. So wow. And I know Benioff was probably uh, friends with him. So oh, absolutely. Condolences, rest in peace, yeah. Mayor Lee. Uh, okay, that was that. <laughs> yeah, there's not much else you can say about that. Um, well, I, I had some things I wanted to get into. I um, we I didn't talk about this last week, but um. I kind of threw my hands up at some point and said, I'm not using Evernote anymore. Yes, and I and you never went into that, and I'm super curious because I still use Evernote, and I've got, oh man, I've got, if I switch to something, and I'm not happy with Evernote, but I also know that my switching costs, it's like, you know, if you decide that you're not happy with Salesforce anymore, the problem is, is like, the switching costs are, it's a roach motel. You cannot get out of this thing unless you're, unless what you have in Salesforce, what you've built in it is just not very valuable to to your business anymore for whatever reason, but... Usually, I mean, the switching costs are so high. Yeah. It's so, they call it, I mean, I guess the nice word for that is sticky. It's sticky. Well, I don't like to let things hold, I don't like things to have that power over me. I don't either. <laughs> and and back in the, back in the, I would say the, uh, the golden age of IT, people actually gave a shit bit vendor lock-in. I mean, I'd chop and, my and, arm and, off if I had to. I mean, I don't want to be locked into things. Yeah. yeah. Bugs me. But no, now it's like, you know, you just code against every proprietary um, API and there's no, no forget it. I mean remember the good old day when we were worried about standards remember those standards and like uh, standards based APIs and things like that yeah I mean a I, lot of people still are you know the um, I don't know you know the I feel like the .NET world I mean here's the deal with .NET like yeah they've standardized some things like C Sharp and whatever but and even I think I think to some extent and I and I'm talking like totally out of my butt here but I believe a lot of the, a lot of the .NET framework is it's actually standardized to some degree which is why you can have what's the like the the Linux implementation Mono is it Mono? Oh uh, yeah uh, yeah I think Mono. 
Anyway, whatever that's called. And that was... .NET Core now, I that, think. That, well, that's, that's Microsoft's effort. And I don't know if they used any of Motto for that or not. But but for the longest time, the only implementation of .NET, and it was a partial one, outside of Microsoft's you know main one, was um, was Motto. Hmm. Um, but, th- but there was always questions around that. Like, no one really wanted to build anything real in Mono because there, my, Microsoft was real cagey about whether they would come after you or not. They wouldn't, you know, they were providing no guarantees of any sort or, mm-hmm. or just assurances that, like, you know, we're not going to sue people for, for, for doing this. Well, I mean, that was back in the Balmer days and you really didn't know. Yeah, and I, I, I don't follow .NET close enough to know what has changed. I mean, obviously they have .NET. Yeah, Bomber's gone. Yeah, <laughs> that's what changed. They have .NET Core, but that that just that's just um, a subset of .NET that they that Microsoft themselves has ported to other platforms. Um, I don't know that that means it's any more open, or I mean, for because the thing like the Java world worried about was they you know they created sets of APIs for every different type of functionality. So there's like an API for um, for web. There's an API for messaging there's an API for database access there's an API for you know all these different things and they go through this process by which the community and these and these people that have been voted to be on these um, specification the, the JSRs at the Java specification request I guess what they are mm-hmm. um, they would they would these the experts this expert committee would would build over the course of time they'd build a specification for a an ORM API, for example, mm-hmm. right? Um, which was basically, you know, they kind of took where Hibernate was at the time and, and and basically standardized that API to some degree. And that was J, that became JPA. But and what's cool about the way that Java does, and I know this is a random tangent, we did not intend on getting into this, but <laughs> it's, it's kind of interesting if you're a nerd. Um, they um, they they made the rule at some point. It is part of the JCP that you have to, in addition to delivering the spec, that you say, okay, this is the spec that now you vendors can go and implement your own server that implements this or whatever, and you can sell it if you want to. And that's a commercial opportunity mm-hmm. to sell people software that that implements this specification. And so theoretically, now you have this marketplace, you have choices. If you know if, if you've if you um, have uh, web logic as your as your server, and just an example like a a, 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 um, a web container type of thing. And if you know if you don't who owns the web logic? Is it IBM? That's yeah, IBM. And if you know IBM, on when you got to renew, they start jacking your rates up, or they're not, you're, you don't feel like you're getting good support for them, or their product's not good. You got a lot of options. There's other web server, there's other servers out there that implement that that specification. So you can just pick up your code and the APIs you've coded against, and theoretically, with some, I mean, I'm sure there's some work there because there's always little bits that the mm-hmm. vendor can say, well, the spec doesn't cover this part, so we're, we've provided our own extension to the API, right? So and that's when you get, you know you have to be kind of smart to know. To, to isolate those if you do need right. to use, you know, but there's ways to do that. But anyway, yeah, you can you can pick up and you go to go to another vendor if you need to. But anyway, what I was gonna say was what's cool about the, what the JCP added was that not only do you have to provide the spec, so when the when the specification group is the JSR when they're done, they provide a spec, they also have to provide a working implementation. Which is awesome. Because you it avoids or generally I think avoids the problem of a spec that no one knows is if it's any good or not, if it, if it can right. be implemented reasonably, if users will want to use that API. But because of, you know, because it takes like, I mean, it can take, I think usually at least a year for one of these JSRs to go through a, a, a cycle. And sometimes a lot of them are multi-year. And so as a part of them developing spec, they're also developing in this reference implementation that people can then take and, and start using. People in the in the group, people outside of the group, because, you know, you can be outside of the, you don't have to be in the JSR to send them feedback and stuff, I think, and to log bugs and things like that. It's It kind of happens in the open or it's supposed to. 
So yeah, you can take that implementation and use it and give them feedback and say, yeah, this this actually is, you know, but this this certain API is not designed well because you actually need to split that into two calls instead of one or you know, you, whatever, whatever needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And because they have to provide a working implementation as a part of the spec, you know, you have to, you're forced to go through that process, which I think is a great idea. But no, that uh, nowadays we just don't, we don't care about any of that at all. <laughs> You're just putting the handcuffs on. It's like, here, yeah, no, handcuff me, vendor. Handcuff me. Yeah, and, but we, and I'm, I, we're, we're, we're here. We're, you know, this is it. I, I've always called foul on, on, on how portable things can be. I always think that, I think we have good intentions in that we want things to be portable and we, we feel like we're making the right decisions to make something portable. But the reality is, I mean, five, 10 years down the line, when you, when you finally start trying to port something into something else, you end up rebuilding it anyways. Usually, yeah, and um, and, and there's it's not so much that the code is bad. It, it's just that well, times change, technologies change. There's new options available. There's 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 just I agree things to consider. I, also, I think you're a little loose there terminology. So we're not talking about you shouldn't like if you're going to switch from Web Logic to JBoss, you you shouldn't have to port anything. That's different. Porting is usually a big effort. This is this is just a matter of you, instead of dropping your WAR file into into WebLogic, you drop it into JBoss. And as long as you, it's the same APIs. Again, you'll find out if, if you did extend or, or you took advantage of some proprietary API that like JBoss doesn't have, you'll, you'll find out. Yeah. And you may have to go clean those bits up. Uh, and usually you know that. I mean, again, good, good engineers always are always thinking about that. Like, is this, is this part of the, is this part of the spec or not? I mean, you hear that, that just, that conversation never stops happening. Like, you want to make sure that you might and here's a great example is the um the like the Jax WS specification which is the again this is all Java stuff but it's it's the specification for dealing with uh, web services so that covers mainly I mean so like the soap and Wisdom, the whole the whole mm-hmm. WS Death Star world so reliable messaging and and all the security specs that got piled on to that whole thing um, from what was the group called Oasis that was doing all those I can't remember now but um so that so the JAXWS is is an API, right? That so you can when you're when you're calling web or consuming web services or or hosting web services, you're doing it through an API um, that is a, that is a standard API. So you can if for some but reason the standard controls the communication mechanism, but it doesn't detail it, it doesn't control what type of calls can be made. It's not like a true interface. It's no universal. no no. It, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't control like what calls your Wizzle can have. It can right. it controls. When you want to when you want to host a web service, like the I don't even know how to describe this, but the, but the APIs that are used to, um, for example, like SOAP has like ports and bindings and all mm-hmm. that stuff, like literally just like getting that running and everything, like all of those APIs, um, and, and that's what the spec covers. And so, for right. example, because the, the reference the, the main reference spec for JAXWS is Metro is the name of it, and if for some reason you know, you realize that Metro isn't going to cut it for you. You need to switch for some reason, or, or Metro's been falling behind as of the past couple of years. So you want to switch to, um, uh, what's the one? There's, uh, God, I can't think of the one I use. Um, uh, 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 CXF, sorry. Wow. Um, again, I should be able to just take JAXWS out of my project and, and drop CXF in on the class path. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, like, that, and that's a great example because there's there's all kinds of places with JaxWS that um, you have to go, you have to use their proprietary APIs to because the spec just didn't, for whatever reason, the people that wrote the spec 
didn't cover certain needed areas of functionality. So all of the impl- actual implementations of it have to add additional APIs of their own to cover certain functionality. I'm trying to think of one, like maybe adding a persistent SOAP header. Or, or how do you get to, how do you, how do you say, hey, I want to add this SOAP header? Like, for example, in the Salesforce world is the, like the session ID. Mm-hmm. Basically, every call you make, you want it to send that SOAP header along. Or like your, um, the different, uh, I mean, any, any SOAP headers, like an example, I guess. But, you know, like um, in, another one in the Salesforce world is like there's, um, there's headers for uh, which lead conversion rule to use, mm-hmm. uh, which are whether or not to send email based on certain CRUD things you're doing. Um, whether or not to do to disable or use duplicate not uh, duplicate rules, right? Those are these are, and so anyway, the, the API. I don't, I don't think that's covered by the spec. So I've always had to find okay. Oh, in Jackson BS, I did like this, but how do I do that in CXF? It's different. So that's one of those. That's one of those areas where you just know you you have to, and you're going outside the spec. But and I think that leads to to kind of one of the points I was making is that there are certain things about an environment that attracts you to it. And a lot of times the optimizations they've built around it is what attract, attracted to you. I mean, you can, you could plug and drop a jar on AWS, but maybe there's some service that they offer that you want to code against because it's going to save you time and you don't want to reinvent the wheel. It, and that just adds to the stickiness of things. No, it does. That's not a it bad is. thing. I feel it's like when not, people get all nope. kind of, you know, strict about, you know, being portable and all this kind of stuff, I'm like, well, then you're going to build everything from scratch. Yeah, Sorry. It, it's exactly. And it's, and you, you, you have to build, you have to sometimes uh, build against proprietary APIs or build your own or whatever. I mean, that's right. that's just part of life. But um, I think as much as possible, especially with your core application, you want to be coding against, you know, JDBC and JMS and um, JSP and and the servlet APIs and all these. These are all standard APIs and 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 I think actually all the ones I just named are actually quite. You if you you'll have a quite portable app. I mean, you can really go to. You can use a different JDBC implementation. Um, you can, you know, use a different messaging is, is one of those that, I mean, I feel like you can pretty easily stick to the spec. But when you go outside the spec, or if you're going to automate some of your infrastructure on AWS, AWS is full of APIs that do all kinds of things, and those aren't standardized at all. Mm-hmm. But as long as, I mean, I think you just have to know, well, what are, we getting our, what are we getting ourselves into here? How do we minimize what we're building against proprietary APIs versus what, what we're building against standardized APIs? And just yeah. making, because, you know, software development, you're making trade-offs constantly. Everything's a trade-off. And you're trying to make smart trade-offs at every step of the way. And well, knowing that, I think that some of the bureaucracy that you kind of discussed earlier when it comes to trying to get something approved into the spec kind of leads to where we're at today. The reason we don't care is because it took too long. It was too much bureaucracy. And, you know, we want to move forward. We want to do these things. We want to try these new concepts out. And we can't because it's stuck in some bureaucratic, bureaucratic uh, nowhere nowhere land where well, look, we can't get to it. Look how long it took. I mean, I mean, Java's had some famous examples of, of releases, major releases that just went years past when they were supposed to be ready. So, you know, Java had to wait longer for generics than .NET. Mm-hmm. Java had to wait much longer for Lambdas than .NET did. I mean, it because, and, and part of that's, again, and Salesforce is kind of in this space now too, I, I feel. Um, Java had so much more existing software out there that they had to be much careful. Like when .NET did, I think it was 1.1. When did they add generics? 1.1, I think. 1.0 think so. did not have generics. 1.1 did. And they just... Broke all broke all backwards compatibility the way they did they did that well that's fine because hardly anyone had written anything there was hardly anything out there for .NET 1.0 yeah it just wasn't that big of a deal there wasn't that I mean you could recompile against .NET 1.1 and probably not have to change that much it wasn't that big of a deal but you, generic shouldn't have been a breaking change though um I mean because there's a syntax associated with that so it, it's the way it was implemented that's one reason why Java had to go with um 
uh, there's a basically erasure um, the, to implement generic. So essentially, you it compile a time and it, it type checking. Um, the compiler makes sure that you know you're you're sending uh, the you're using the right types with whatever your generic thing is, whether it's a, a collection or some other thing that's a, a generic class or a generic method. It does so make is it sure possible it, it introduce new keywords that previously weren't keywords. Um, you mean when in the well, .NET one point like, one thing like. You know the capital T being the symbol for the for a generic type on a on a. Well, that's just arbitrary. You can have anything, right? Yeah, I'm I just mean, saying. I don't think so, I, and I don't remember honestly well enough. I just remember that <clears throat> it. Um, I actually, I think I heard a talk when they were talking about how it was just not a big deal for them. Whereas in the Java world, I mean, it's a it's an absolute huge deal. So like anytime with Java, I'm trying to think of what's what is a keyword they've added. Um, they try not to ever add keywords, but that's a, that's a that's a tricky thing. I mean, what happens when you add an, add a new keyword to the language? Mm-hmm. Well, now you got to go search. Everyone has to go search their code bases for this keyword to see if they're using it as like a variable name or or you know whatever. I mean, it's a, you can get yourself into trouble. Well, I mean, version way. targeting should help with that for it, the compiler. It does. It does. But you don't want to be stuck on an old version. You want to keep. You know what I'm saying? Like you. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a migration path, and you either either write a tool to help people get there, or everyone has to do their find and replace. Yeah, and right, exactly. But anyway, my point was, you know, Java, it, because of its success, and it's probably the most, by far, the most successful programming platform, um, at least for enterprise stuff, in, in the past 20 years, um, uh, they, they, they've just had to go slow. They've had to take their time. Um, but yeah, .NET, when they implemented uh, generics, they were, able, they, didn't, they were able to do, basically have reified generics. So at runtime, you can say, hey, Mr. List, what are you a list of? And it can say, hey, I'm a list of integers. Java can't do that. It doesn't know at runtime because it can't do this with you, Java. No, you, you can't. I know. I need, I need a clip of that. I need, I need a clip of Benioff saying that. Can't do this with Oracle's Java. It'd be awesome. Um, <laughs> but no, the, yeah, the types get, a, get erased. I mean, they don't, they don't persist in the, in the, in the jar or, the, or the, the compiled artifact. So you can say, hey, Mr. List, what type of you? And I'll say, I'm a list of nothing. I'm a list of I don't know. It just doesn't know. But, but it's so great that it doesn't know. <laughs> there's, a, there's a peace in not knowing, right? Yeah. There's a peace in not there knowing is. some things. I'll tell you, some of the things I, I love when I go back to C-sharp and do some development is I love VARs. I love the hell out of VARs. I love the hell out of generics. I mean, I'm just, I just I miss these things. When I, when I go back to these environments and I code even the smallest thing, I'm just like, oh, I miss this so much. Yeah, and that's one of those things. It's like, okay, there's there's developers that use var because they don't know what the what the heck they're doing with types, mm-hmm. um, and then there's the developers that use vars because it just why tell the compiler twice when you can just right. tell it once? Yeah, it's so much simpler. Yeah, and that's one thing that you know, Java. Gosh, sometimes I feel like like I was um, there's a uh, oh, I don't know what you call these things. There there there's the kind of like these. It's almost like utility utility code, but let's say that you've got a like in, in your and you've got all these domain entities, right? So like uh, in the Salesforce world, like maybe might be like accounts and contacts and things. Let's then let's say those are Java classes, right? They're 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 domain entities. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've, let's say you've got an API that lets users access those for some reason. Well, you generally don't want to return your just your entire do like the a, a, again like a, a JSON representation of a, of your entire domain that do, right. domain entity because it's number one, it's going to have like it's probably going to be. Uh, like a, a hibernate-enabled entity, and it's going to have all kinds of stuff, maybe security-related stuff, sensitive stuff that that you don't want to be sending down to the client. So what you do is you generally you generally have a like an account DTO type of thing, mm-hmm. and you're mapping stuff that you want to go from your the domain entity over to the DTO, and only right. those things. It's like, kind of like a subset. And so there's there's all kinds of software that just will will handle um, their libraries, right? The handle like mapping from one 
type to another. And there's one, I'm trying to think of what's called Model Mapper, I think I've, I've been looking mm-hmm. at. I've used to use this one called Dozer for the longest time. I've used it forever and it's fine. But you have to config it with um, with with XML. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, I started a new project a, a few months ago and I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to, I knew there were some new ones so I was checking them out and there's one, it's, I think it's Model Mapper. And it's API, if you want to, it's actually got a kind of a Java 8 API that allows, you know, like configuring it by use of lambdas and everything. So it's like this really nice looking API for telling it like how to map, you know, like this this map this getter to this setter and this property to this property or whatever, and uh, the nice API for that. But this class I was trying to map was it's a generic class, so it's a it was I'm trying to think what it was. It was like a um, oh it was a it was like a page uh, a, a, a paginator I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know it it has you know number total number of records total number of pages page size what is the current page right right but then also the list of records. Well, that's a list of T, and that's a generic. It's a generic list, right? And I could not figure out how to make the type system happy. I couldn't make the compiler happy with how do I? I'm trying to, you know, again, I'm trying to, I'm trying to configure this model mapper by using its API to say map this list of things, this thing to list this list of other thing. But I want to do it in a generic way. I don't have to do a configuration for when it's a page of accounts versus a page of contacts versus a page of opportunities and whatever. I want to do that once, and I, I couldn't. Like the compiler wouldn't take back. I couldn't figure out how to what code to write to make the compiler happy. So I just gave up. I'm like, screw it. And I just wrote. A, I just wrote. A, you know, like two lines of manual mapping. I just, you know, so whatever. Um, well, I think but but so. you and I, so you. Know, my point is, you end up fighting sometimes with. And yeah. I'm and I you know if I don't know, I probably should go back and uh, I don't know, learn learn generics better or something. But and I, again, I don't know if it was like was it a, was it a problem with with I, was I using the types incorrectly? Was it a type thing like with generics or was it was I somehow doing something wrong with the because um, Java has you know lambdas and along with that they mm-hmm. they added like method references um, and there's all kinds of uh, what do they call these um, um, they're basically like these functional interfaces so there's mm-hmm. there's all kinds of like now there's built in types like interfaces in in the in the JDK that are like uh, I can't think of what they what they call them but it's basically like you know a, there's a type that takes nothing and returns a value there's a type that takes no value and returns no value there's a, you know there's and so you can you can actually, it just makes it really easy to write very concise code that, you know, to do like functional style. And like, especially when it comes to like collection manipulation, list manipulation, stuff like that. Instead of having to like loop through a list and then manually filter it down and populate a second list, like you can, there's just like, you know, you call a filter and you implement this like super simple thing. Um, so I don't know if I was doing something wrong with that. I don't know what it was, but I'm like, okay, I'm on a, I'm on a time limit. And as much as it would, <laughs> would, would please my, my nerd. You know, side to keep jacking with this and again to and to beat this thing at its own game. Like I just had to move on and yeah. just write the two dirty lines of code that you know I'll, I'll put a two do on and come back some point later, uh, aka never and <laughs> fix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, that was a long introduction to Evernote. That was. <laughs> I'm starting, See, to, if, I'm starting to wait for it ever pop that. If stack. that's not proof that we have zero, we do zero planning for this podcast. I don't know what is. I don't know. All right. Good well, tell me about Evernote because, like I said, I uh, I could. Oh, that's how we got into it. like switching, switching costs, switching. Yeah, like I have so much in Evernote. <laughs> I mean, I literally like all my taxes, both personal and business. I mean, I, I screenshot it or scan everything and I tag it and put it in certain notebooks. And then when I got to do taxes at the end of the year. I just like I pull that tag. Mm-hmm. I send it. I send everything over to my accountant. I'm, I mean, I've just everything my whole life, personal, business, 
It's See, all I, ne- in I never used Evernote to that extent. So okay, I mean, I, I used it a lot for my note taking and you know personal things that I would you know track with notes or the documents, even some documents. Um, I, I will tell you that the, the switching did not happen. It, it wasn't a migration. I didn't migrate to this new app. I basically said, okay, I'll keep Evernote. I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna run this app primarily as primary. And if I decide I like it, then I'll figure out how to migrate and how I want to migrate. Because the migration is pretty heavy-handed. I can basically export all my notes and then re-import them and then tag them because this has a different tagging scheme and everything. Yeah, so yeah. It sucks when uh, you're trying to switch from one system to another and they have a, a different data model. Because then now you're talking yeah, about very much different a significant like, yeah. migration. Especially if... Now, if it's something where like you're converting from like one really popular note system to an, another note system, like they could write... It might it might make sense for them just from a business perspective to like write an Evernote importer, right? Which but I wish they did, but they, but they didn't. didn't. They didn't have that. Okay. I mean, they basically. But can instruct- you tell, can we can you let the cat out of the bag here and tell us what this is that you switched to, or or do you have some build, grand build up you're doing here? Oh no no, okay. there's no build up. I don't I don't I don't want to ruin your story here. So, okay, so what did you switch to? I will say it's not Quip. It's not, did you look at Quip? <laughs> Uh, I, I've I've looked at Quip before. I haven't looked Quip at it. It's not recently. really a note taking app, though, right? Yeah, it's more like this. This, yeah, I mean, it's it's very much more of a document. I, I, they're so very I, much trying to go after the enterprise market with it in, in terms of you know document and team sharing. Right, it's a t- team collaborative. I was like, document. I don't okay. need that. Yeah. And one of the features that Evernote never fully re- supported, and I tweeted at them like numerous times. I mean, there's it's very rare that I tweet a company or tweet at a company and say this sucks that I can't do this. I mean, they've responded to me a few times, but they had very crappy, if not not, no support for um, Markdown. And I like taking notes in Markdown because it's such a natural way for me to to organize my notes without having to get my mouse involved and highlight things and and do things and and things like that. So I've, I've always wanted them to have Markdown support. And they've added like a few things. You could type in like a, I don't know, like a, a symbol that would mean something in Markdown and it might convert it. But it's it's a one way conversion. This There's no whole, going back. I'd like to have a markdown discussion because I feel like I feel like I don't get markdown. So, but maybe we can circle back to that. You should come take a look at my screen because it's awesome. I, I I will. But anyway, so, <laughs> right, so, All right, so the app they is, so they, it doesn't do markdown. So my this app does does markdown. Oh, it does. And so okay. that makes me so much happier. You made me so very happy. In fact, even our show notes our markdown. I use the markdown editor for our show notes. And what that means is is now all my notes are in this application. It's it's called Bear. It's called Bear. Bear Writer, I think is what it's called. Okay. Um they have like an annual pro subscription for like 15 bucks, which I went ahead and did because I really wanted to evaluate it fully. Um so I didn't I didn't migrate anything over. I started from scratch and I just started adding notes and I've started this probably 2 weeks ago when I started using it. Um and yeah, I I love it. It's exactly what I want. It's very simple. There's not there's no tab bar that says bold this or highlight this or underline this. It's all markdown. And I don't lose the markdown support. I can delete something and change it and it'll go back to, you know, a pound or a hash or whatever, and I can add to that and I can modify it. I I could highlight some text and 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 mark it. Links are supported the way I want them to be. There's the, you know, the bracket and the parentheses used to create a link. That's supported and so that's it's just all, it just all works. And so I found when I'm taking notes, I'm much faster and much more efficient. I'm worried less about how things are laid out and I'm just, and it all looks good to me. Hmm. Um, and see, yeah. So when, when I think about, you know, why I switched is I was having a lot of syncing issues with Evernote. Yeah. Um, I, I lost a note for the first time the other day. 
I didn't like the organization scheme of it. I didn't like all these notebooks. I, I found myself trying to jump between notebooks and then tags and all these different things. And I was like, this really sucks. And then the markdown was the biggest one. I was like, I really want markdown support. Yeah. Because um, I, I just, that's just the way I think. Um, when I was blogging heavily, I actually used a program called Ulysses. It's a writer application. And it'll let you convert that markdown because you write in markdown. And it'll let you convert it to all these different data sources. And so what I do is I write in markdown and then convert it into something that I could put onto my blog. Um, so it was a very natural way for me to write. I, I learned markdown and I used the hell out of it. And so when I was came to notes, I was like really missing that. And I thought about using Ulysses for notes, but I thought, oh, that's kind of, it's not what I want to use Ulysses for. So this app came up. It was, uh, I don't remember where I heard about it, but I finally went and just downloaded it and installed it. And it's got a very minimal interface. What's it's it got like three panes, bare. Bear. Yeah, bear. Huh. <laughs> what, what is it? Bearapp.com, I bet. Uh, it might be bear-writer. Oh, beard app comes up. Weird. Beard. No, it's not beard. There we go. I think it's bear writer. So it's okay. So it's for this is very much an, an Apple ecosystem thing, right? Write beautifully on the so. iPhone, iPad, and Mac. Yeah. Well, that was the other thing. I so still this, wanted would you say this was... is more for writing than notes? No, Ulysses is more for writing. Okay. This is, but this is notes. This is this is definitely more for notes and for people who love Markdown, which I do. The only the only thing it gives you to organize is you have basically tags. That's it. You have your list view and you can tag things. So which they, I love. they only have Markdown on their website, but they do. It does mention advanced markup options. I, I guess yeah, that's code that's word for. Do they support different uh, dialects of Markdown? I don't know if they do. <laughs> it supports the, the dialect that I know, which was the original. The original. Is that the uh, the, the Gruber? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was struggling to remember the name or I would have said it, but yes, yeah, the Gruber. So, I, you know, I, one of my main use cases of Evernote is essentially as a, uh, what do you call, um, oh, shit, what's that called? The, the, Documentless, no, um, paperless, paperless. Yeah, I'm paperless, man. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a few folders at home with stuff that I can't scan or like the originals, like passports and things like that. Every, other than that, everything for me is paperless because I, you know, I just, I hate folders of stuff. I hate, I, I hate not being able to find stuff, um, whether it's receipts, you know, tax stuff, whatever. It's all paperless and, and, and one thing that Evernote does that's cool, they've always done it. Maybe this is not a big deal. It's probably not anymore. This is like such old technology. But everything I, every document I scan in, it, it OCRs it so I can later go mm. and search for something and it come, you know, usually comes up. It's, it's OCR is pretty good. Yeah, I, I don't think you get that with this application. So I think if, if that's a big thing that you use, I don't think this gives you that. Deal, total deal breaker for me. But that's not how I use it. I mean, I use this for notes. I, well, that's I, what I'm saying. I need it's a very minimal interface. Yeah. This isn't to organize my life. Right. This isn't to go paperless. I'm very much paperless in general. But I don't use a single app to control that. I actually, well, I guess if I use a single app, it's Dropbox. I mean, I'll organize things in my Dropbox folder and I'll have documents in there organized. And when I need it, I go to my Dropbox. Yeah. I don't need to convert it into this application that has syncing issues and may or may not have it. And Because I, when I traveled, all my travel documentation, my itinerary, everything, I'd put into Evernote and it was like my main thing. Yep. And then I was like, oh, screw this. There's an American Airlines app and I can... Board the plane with my watch. I don't need to keep track of all oh, this stuff You can put anymore. it in your passbook now, too. Or what do they call it? The wallet, I guess? Wallet. Yeah, well, that's what happens. You add it to your wallet, and then it shows up on your watch, and you just go ping. Although, I've been using my phone because for some reason, they they have the... They they use this kind of kiosk, and you have to, like, f- put your phone yeah. on it. So, you're trying to turn your wrist and upside down. So, I'm trying down. to turn my wrist upside down. <laughs> so, I just started using my phone again because I was yeah. like, this is awkward. What's 
I feel like this kind of works and it kind of doesn't work. But the thing where like, if you're near security, like your phone, it just, the, the, um, your, what do you call it? Boarding pass just Mm -hmm. automatically comes up on your phone. Like Mm -hmm. your phone knows you're near the security station or whatever. Well, for mine, it's just always in the lock screen. So I just, I I don't even have to, I mean, I do have to unlock my, I don't, I don't think I have to unlock my phone. I just swipe it and shows it. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, that was a big anxiety for me because now I can just tuck my, my, actually, I don't even have a paper document anymore, but I used to tuck that in and try to keep track of it and try to remember where it's at and hold it in my hands and get it all sweaty because I'm anxious about getting on the plane. Yeah. You're nervous and nervous, Nelly. Oh, I'm horrible yeah. to fly with. This, no, this, this app looks nice. Um, let's, they have like a little one minute thing. Let's play that real quick. You want to? Sure. Like a little overview. <laughs> this is Kenny Loggins. Or, uh, um, what's the British guy? Faith? <laughs> well, I guess it would be nice. <laughs> what's his name? Oh, uh, George, uh, George Michael. George Michael. Okay, I thought this was going to be an explanation. Okay, no, that's just no, happy it's music. very much okay. happy music. <laughs> it, it's the typical startup video where you have the tappy music and you see video of them doing stuff and yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about markup. So, Markdown. I, markdown, sorry. Um, which is uh, obviously a play on a markup. It's it's either I don't know what he's either saying that this is against markup. It's like or or it's a type of markup that I'm just giving a Q name. Anyway, I, well, I think know. when you write markup, you you write it in this cryptic language and then it translates into this non cryptic language. But when you write in markdown, you write in regular language and it it compiles down to this cryptic language. Does it? <laughs> well, uh, in the background. Okay. 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 Here's a better. Here's a better one. You're writing to tell the computer display it for humans, and this you're writing it as a human dis- for the computer okay. to understand. So, so markdown, That's what it is. markdown is is pretty easy to look at and see what you meant. Okay, yeah, you yep. meant for this to be underlined. Okay, you meant for this to be kind of emphasized in some way. Okay, yeah, I see you're doing bullets there. I mean, it's just asterisk, right? Or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that's that's kind of nice that the the markup of markdown is human. It's much more human readable than. You know, like XML or HTML or something like that. It's, right. You know, there's no slashes and angle brackets, which are just ugly and offensive to your eyeballs. So I get that. Um, but still, the go- the ultimate goal of Markdown is for something to read that mm-hmm. and then produce HTML. Um, yeah. So so that humans can see the the um, the WYSIWYG part. You know, the actually actual bullets and and italicized. Type and an actual underlines under thing under under words right yeah uh, or 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 heading text that's of a certain size and things like that um and so when I'm doing markdown I'm still actually seeing what's for the computer not what's for the human and that's what I don't get about markdown I I, I understand it's it's not as bad as HTML mm-hmm. but it's still not as good as seeing WYSIWYG but I don't think that was the intent I mean it's the, not the, the intent, intent it's like, was that, I know it's like well because like here's here's a markup. <clears throat> That's not so bad, so you can actually you can actually live with it. You don't need Wizzy. You don't have to have WYSIWYG. You can actually the the markdown the markup of Markdown itself is nice enough on the eyes that it won't it doesn't bother you as much as HTML. So you can you can live in it longer without getting fatigued. Well, I think I think it's more than that, and I'm not going to pretend to know the the origin story behind it. But I think the intent because Gruber basically no, you should pretend to know it. Just make something up. Well, no one will ever know. <laughs> I mean, he he was infamous for for all, you know his web development stuff and he wasn't running, infamous. He's famous. 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 Sorry, I, I use that. I, I I always use infamous. People do. I don't know why. I, I don't know. Maybe it is infamy. <laughs> well, it could be. 
that's so, so daring fireball if you go to daring fireball that that's i can't believe we're, we're um promoting him anyway okay. i know sorry <laughs> well, you, uh, i'll bleep that right. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna bleep me talking about uh yes all of it marco yes oh yeah that was just that just got bleeped they just heard a bleep <laughs> anyways um he, he would basically test out a lot of his his concepts for HTML design on his blog. So his blog was always changing, and he was always doing things, and he was hand-coding it from scratch. And I think my point of view, and I don't know if this is the real story or not, but my point of view is within that, he discovered that, you know, in order to write, because this, this is why I started using Markdown, is because when I was writing blog posts, I was so focused on the HTML and the markup side of things, because I was writing it from scratch, that I wasn't focused on the writing. And so all I really needed to do was with Markdown is kind of tell is kind of highlight with some kind of token or keyword, whatever you want to call it. This is my header and this is my page block. And here's my, here's my sentence structure and all that. And I'm not, I'm not trying to do a P or an H or an L and trying to organize it and figure out, does that need to be in a section? Does that need to be in a side? Does that need to be in a, in a block? I'm just writing. Yeah. Um, so for me, when I was writing blog posts, it was helpful for me to, to get rid of that, to know that I'm just going to focus on writing and that, I'm not losing productivity with that because now I can just, okay, I can spit this out as HTML. Yep. And that's that's the part I think I understand about Markdown. When you're going from, when you're in goals, you've got to produce HTML. Mm-hmm. Okay, I understand that. Yeah, right in Markdown because it's, you can kind of, it's much easier to read and see what you're doing. And it's it's precise enough that it can be converted to HTML by some right. interpreter or converter thing. Um, but I don't, but I don't understand the use case when it comes to notes. Like, well, I have an answer to that. Like, okay, so let me say, so like, in, I'm just in Evernote here. I mean, I can, I know all the hotkeys for making something bullet, making something italicized, you know. And well, there's I, no hotkey. You can type in an asterisk in space and you'll get a bullet. In Evernote? In Evernote. Oh, I'm not even trying. It has, it has minimal support for Markdown. Okay. But anyway, why do, why do I need Markdown when I, when I can be in WYSIWYG wig mode and, and use hotkeys and still, again, I never, I never have to use the mouse. I never have to go up to the, the toolbar or any of that stuff. Well, for me, because hotkeys are a break in my thinking. They're a break in my, my mental flow. But like, but like writing a bunch of underscores to produce an underline is not? It's not. I mean, I, I cause, okay, if I want to write a bullet right now and I'm going to do it, I'm just going to be like, okay, asterisk, hello, and then just keep going. I mean, that that's natural to me. If I want a header, I just do pound, pound, hello, or pound, one pound, hello. I mean, it's just natural to me. Yeah. And I, mean, I, I guess I, I think, you know, if I'm going to have a bullet, a list of things, I hit the bullet keyboard shortcut once and then every time I hit enter I get new bullets I don't have to worry about typing asterisks and things oh you don't once you establish you're in a you're in a bullet at least with this application it, yeah. it continues the, the the theme for you it okay. does it for you but for me I get I get kind of this this really well formatted I get real bullets I get real header headers with the bold and the bigger text I get all of that with this application just by doing markdown. So I, I instantly start to format my document without having to worry about formatting. You know, yeah. I don't have to worry about going back in and highlighting this and going, okay, I'm gonna need to make that bold. I didn't want that to be an H1. Or, oh no, that's that's really more of an H3 topic. So let me let me convert that to an H3. I just add an extra pound to it. I mean, it's it's as simple as that. Yeah. Okay. I'm not trying to sell it. I'm just I, telling I just you this is why I like it. I, I understand I it. that. And I, I think I think and I think markdown is is kind of a nerdy thing too. I think people like it because it is kind of nerdy. I mean, what? But everything you just described, I'm thinking to myself, to myself. Okay, what I do is, you you just describe two things that have the same amount of effort. Whether you're changing a, a two to a three or adding a pound, 
it does sound like the same amount of effort. <laughs> No. And maybe, maybe it's just because I, I took the time and effort to learn it and I, I feel so natural with it. And I used it when I was writing my blog post. I used it heavily. Yeah. Um. So it's a, such a natural thing for me to use. And I think, again, I think the whole like writing blog post, that, that's a really good use case for Markdown because it's got to become HTML, but I don't want to write this in HTML. I don't want to, mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't want my creative process to be constantly interrupted by having to, oh, Fitbit. angle bracket, I forgot right. or whatever, you know, and it's like. Well, for me, it's it's really about establishing some kind of structure visually in my document without having to worry about, okay, okay, I need to highlight this, make this bold. Uh, let me let me add a new line, make this an, an italics because it's kind of just like a sub sub bit of information. I mean, I don't have to worry about that. I just, I just use the keywords and yeah, I can go back in and highlight and modify, but now I feel like I'm editing and that's not the point. The yeah. point is for me to just get, get this it's information content, right? yeah. out and get my first draft because that's the hardest part is getting your first draft and then you can start whittling it down to your final draft. But the hardest part is getting the first draft. And if you're worried about formatting on your first draft, it's like pre-optimizing yeah. your code. If you were so worried about, you know, optimizing your code on first draft, you're never going to be done. Yeah. Well, it sounds like I'm going to have to stick with Evernote. I, I think Evernote's okay. I don't know. And, and there's there's been some some famous critiques of Evernote and some some well-publicized, like, disasters around Evernote. And I've been... They also haven't done much to the app in years. Well, I mean, they, you say they, that, they did the but final. So it used to be a a cross platform application. Um, it's not. No. Well, okay, hold on. It used to be a single cross platform application. It was I forgot what it was built on, um, but then they switched and went all native. So they had they built a new. No, no. I'm sorry. Yeah, they built a a Java, not a Java version. They actually built a C. They built it in C. Okay. Um, so they converted it. I think there was a .NET application, then they converted it down to C, and then they went all native with other things with like a C core library or something. So that story was extremely interesting to me. It was like, because at the time I was wanting to build cross-platform applications, but I didn't want to use HTML. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to go the route they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's insane, by the way, what you have to do to get that to work. But anyways, um, so that's why I followed them story and, and I really was into them but they haven't really done much with the application since then. It's been very much, you know, incremental maintenance updates. I haven't seen anything major come out from them. Yeah, it it is very incremental, but it does get updated pretty regularly. I mean, I see I know I noticed mainly on um on the on the phone app that it's getting updated and they're at, I don't know, it's like it kind of does what it needs to do. I I think is maybe their attitude at this point. Um but they I, but they do I, don't know. They, I think they're struggling to to find a place to find they, a that could be. I, that's they what moved I said. into enterprise, and for some, why, why is it when you move into enterprise you stagnate? I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know, and I don't. I don't know how much they're in enterprise. I've never even really heard an enterprise that's standardized on Evernote or anything, so I'm not sure how that works. But yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, the software business is tough, especially these consumer focused ones. And I still think the Evernote's largely consumer focused. I mean, they do have an Evernote business, I guess, whatever that is. But I mean, I, I think I bet you eighty percent of their business is, is consumers. That's what they got started on. And you think? I mean, I do think. I think. So I don't know, but I mean, they were for around forever, and they had become famous right before, and had huge success before they ever did a business thing. So, yeah, I guess. But yeah, like I said, I mean, there's, there's, there have been some well publicized disasters around Evernote, and and I, I, you know, it's one of those things. You read these stories, you're like, okay, I can't tell if like someone just did something really stupid or if Evernote really lost all their stuff or whatever. I can't remember what the details were, but. For me, it's just always it always kind of works, and it again the, it it does what I need it to do. It, it's got the OCR thing for documents, and 
don't yeah. know. Um, I haven't found anything better. If anyone knows anything, let me know. But well, the other thing, the other thing that I enjoyed about it that I do kind of miss, not too much because I can still make it work. But is they had they had the browser plugin, and so sometimes oh, the clipper, the web clipper, the web clipper, yep. and I, I did use that a lot, especially when I was kind of researching inspiration for designs and things like that. I I'd, I'd comb dribble. Um, so if you look at something that looks familiar, it's probably because I stole it from Dribble. Yeah. <laughs> and like Evernote but, uh, has, Evernote yeah, has, also I can has, clip that and just create like an inspiration board for yeah. for stuff. Um, and I do this thing where when people like when I get an invoice or something like that or anything I'm, I need to save, you can uh, via email. I can just forward it to my. I have some Evernote email address, mm-hmm. and then in the subject you can you can indicate like which notebook you wanted to get into, which um, which tags to add to it, and that just works, man. I use that all the time. Yeah, I used really to do well. that when I was. Um, when I was using email for all my projects, I mean, everything was done on email, but since I pushed a lot of my projects into Slack, I don't have to do that anymore. But yeah, for the longest time, I would basically forward these emails. Like someone tell me what I need to build an email and I'd, I'd have to forward that to my Evernote because that's where I kept track of that stuff. Um, now it's either in Slack or in Asana, which, you know, Asana has been a big boon to my productivity as well. Really? Yeah. To me, it's just, it's... um. I didn't like Trello. I tried that and we tried that. I did not like it. Although the one thing I liked about Trello was the Kanban. But I didn't like the tooling, and I didn't like the way it worked. And yet, I liked Asana, and they came out with a Kanban, and I love it. And I think it's because I didn't have like a single Kanban or something. I don't know. It's just the way they implemented it. I had all these options of of how things got into my Kanban from different projects into my single Kanban, mm-hmm. so that I could manage multiple projects from my single Kanban screen. Yeah, I mean, Asana is definitely a task and project management tool, and and. Uh, but uh, Trello doesn't even have doesn't even have those terms in its lexicon. Yeah. It's 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 just lists and cards, and you can you want to you want to model tasks in that fine. You want to model user stories in that fine. You want to do your organize your your you know garage makeover project in that fine. Mm-hmm. Whatever. It's like it's super generic, and that's it's good and bad. It is good and bad. Um, one thing I like about uh, what Trello, particularly on projects, like so, I give an example here. Not not a real example. This is a fake example uh, to protect the innocent. But you know, let's like look at something like Jira, right? So totally fine. It does what everything you wanted to do, but it also does a hundred times more things than you actually wanted to do. It's got it's harder to configure because of that. There's all I mean, it's got all these enterprise features. I mean, tracking and like auditing and reporting to just at the wazoo, right? Mm-hmm. And it makes it harder to set up, and and for users it's harder. I mean, I I use that. I used. Um, I'm not actually using Jira right now, but I used it on a project for a couple. That was a couple of years, and we. I mean, I just always write things. I'm like, how do I? What? How do I get into this? Like, what? How do I get back to you, or how do I get back to that list of things, or whatever? It's like, it's very. It's also very complicated, right? So, yeah. and even the even their Kanban, they they have like an agile product, like an add on, basically to their project management tool. And it's got a Kanban, and it's got some nice features to it. I mean, you can set, you know, one things that I, one thing that I kind of like. Then again, I know this is more on the managementy kind of thing, but you can you can set work and process maximum. So like, you can't, you know, if you say that you can have two stories in process, you try to drag that third one in, it doesn't let you, right? Um, and whereas in Trello, like that functionality, I don't think I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can say that you can't have that kind of this kind of workflow rules in in Trello. All your workflow flow is all just by convention, by how you've agreed to work with your team. Yeah. It's not going to enforce that. So, I mean, but, it's, it's just like playing cards on the table. You just but the great thing about Trello, it's, it's nothing but lists and cards, right? Yeah. And in and in Jira, because it because it's you know within every card 
which is like a story, whatever, in Jira, I mean, you can create subtasks and predecessor tasks. And, and now you're just back into project management hell, right? Which and, I don't like. And of course, we all know that you cannot model, you can't, you can't, um, you can't work a software project like that. No. And but people try to. And so you, yes. they, people end up, instead of getting work done, they end up living in Jira. And they end up with these long meetings about what, oh, gee, what subtasks should we create under the, let's, let's use subtasks to create the technical spec under each story. And like, then, <laughs> then under each of those, we'll create the tasks for the actual doing the work. Yeah. And we'll cross-link those to the requirements. Like, oh my God, shoot me now, please. <laughs> <laughs> this is. I feel like I'm back in 1997 well, again. To, to be fair, getting organized for a project is important. You do have to be organized, and you do have to. You have to be have organized just enough, though. You have right. to have just, just enough, enough organization yeah. because people and there's a lot of people with this personality that they like spending time in the tool, mm -hmm. and they really like going balls to the wall with the tool. Yeah, because they want to show their little dashboards to show progress yeah. and, and that's, percentage complete. To them, to a lot of people, that's getting work done, and to me, that's not getting work done. That's no. avoiding getting work done. Yeah. Yeah. That is, this is not productive time. Right. Like just, you'd be better off spending time just getting to an MVP, validating some, what you thought were the requirements or whatever, you know, this, it's almost never the right thing to do. And that's what I like about Jira, um, Trello. It's just like, you got lists and you got cards. I mean, yeah, you can, I mean, sure you can, you can trust me. I'm, I've seen people get out of control with that too. Like, yeah. you know, you see a card that's got 80,000 bullet points under it or, <laughs> yes. or they're, instead of using the, 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 the description of the note area, like they're just adding a, a comment for each bullet point. Or I'm like, no, that's not what the comments are for. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm impossible. Well, I, I, I mean, I will say that I do enjoy things to be simple and like I used to use a, a, a task manager called things and it's a very expensive app. Uh, it's a like good app. 40, 50 bucks, right? So yeah. it's not, yeah. Well, that's for, for, for yeah. task manager. Exactly. No, it expensive. is. It is. And, and the reason I stopped using it is because I found I was spending more time trying to organize my project. I had these projects, and I also had these subtasks and these due dates. And that, and that's and a that. GTD app, right? Yeah. yeah. So you have context. And yeah. So, so the only thing I was getting done was organizing my damn projects. Right. I wasn't getting anything actually done. <laughs> yeah. So I went to Wonderlist, which I loved because it was just basically, it was extremely simple. You just create a task and you, but then I started getting, you can, you can bastardize that too. Oh, I started yeah. getting ugly with that. Yeah. Um, and then I switch to Asana and I try to get people on that. So I basically try to dictate what people do. I will say Asana with. is well done. It's, it's a nice app. And at the time, right? it had very limited features. Okay. It was well done and it was limited because Asana. it didn't give you all these subtasking things. Now it does. Now it's trying to grow up and adds all these kind of complexities. I would just make rules. No sub, no subtasks, no predecessor tasks. We're going to keep it simple. Yeah. But the way it does subtasks is so crappy that no one uses it, which means it's still a great tool for me because no one uses the <laughs> subtask feature. Uh, I don't know. I know people who would make who would figure out how to use the <laughs> subtasks and make it work. Um, but one thing I like is that I can is that they didn't create a barrier between projects. They didn't say, "Okay, here's your project. This is the project is your workspace, and this is this is what you do in that workspace." They can cross projects or now. Yeah. It can cross yeah, projects cool. and everything, so that I don't have. I can. I can be on three or four different projects with the same client. Oh, you're seeing a, a, a unified, my, a unified Kanban dashboard or whatever. Well, basically, people will toss things from one project onto my con my personal Kanban board, which is kind of a project type. Mm. And now I have. Mm. I can set my priorities of what's on deck and what's in progress yeah. across multiple projects. And so, for, so for my project manager. Um, they're able to kind of help me prioritize my day and my work, and all I have to focus on is is what I have in my pro in progress bucket. <laughs> Just see you going, Daddy. Can you help me manage my project? No, yes. managing manage is nothing more than setting the sort order in my Kanban view. Yeah. Okay, this is the next one. I'm gonna pull off the the stack. 
that's it. Yeah. There's there's no there's nothing else. There's no due date. I don't I don't do due dates on them or anything. It's, they can add due dates to the to the task if they want, but that's not how I organize my day. I just go, what's in my in progress? That's what I'm working on. You said doo doo. Doo doo. You much, know. <laughs> much have you had to drink? Nothing. I'm coffee. Does that count? No. no I'm I'm just I'm delirious because I'm so tired. Is that the right word? I'm I'm yeah. just out of it. Well, l- l- let me let me segue out of this topic. Sriracha. I did that poll and I had to talk about this. I didn't see the results. Okay. Dude, you keep it in the fridge, right? That's like keeping peanut yeah, butter in the fridge. 50% don't... says keep it in the fridge, 30% says no, and uh, 20% said they didn't know what uh, Sriracha was. What does the company say? They don't say anything. What? They not have, they just, how do they not offer guidance on that? All they say is keep it in a cool place. And that's your cabinet. Yeah. Yeah. But it's odd. A lot of people say if you want it, if you want the color, the real red color, then stick it in the fridge because otherwise, if you don't, it'll oxidize and it'll start to change color. To me, putting chili in the fridge means it's going to kind of lose some of its spice. I mean, do you keep any of your chili sauces? I don't keep none of them. In Honestly, the fridge. for the for like forever, I've put hot sauce and everything in the fridge. Really? Yes. As soon as I open it, I stick it in the fridge. And it was only until recently when I opened a new bottle. That I go, oh yeah, I love new bottles because they always taste so much better. And so I was like, am I supposed to refrigerate this? Because I always do. Mm. We don't it's, refrigerate. I mean, like we have, the, you know, that and and well, we have all kinds of chilies, you know, Cholula and Tabasco and all the, you know. It's not so like anything can grow in those things. They're so acidic no, no, and they, spicy right. and just non-conducive for well, bacteria to grow. And they, they've got so much salt and, and uh, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think they're, I don't think spoilage is a concern. If, if anything, if anything, I might buy the oxidation argument. It, it could kind of just like What about like the spiciness stale? argument? Because I, I do know that some people have said in the past, I don't know if this is an old wives' tale, that if something is really spicy, you stick it in the fridge after like a week or so. Not a week, because a couple of days or so, like the spiciness starts to to go down. Like it like, kind of loses its spice. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that either. Because I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not. Sh- I don't. I don't know that cap. So it's capsaicin. That's what. Yeah. Uh, that's what, right. Yeah. That's what they call the spicy factor. R- right. Well, that's that's the the chemical compound. I don't. I don't. The Coville t- scale is is how they measure that. Scoville. Scoville. Yeah. Yeah. What did I say? Scoville. Coville. I don't know. I didn't. I don't know what you said. It didn't sound. I thought you said Coville. But yeah, Scoville, I guess Scoville, is the. Yeah. Of course, I don't know if that's still the. Is that still the scale mm-hmm. that's used? It is because like remember, oh, yeah. remember the, the Fujita scale for tornadoes? Like they don't use that anymore. They don't use the Richter scale for oh, earthquakes. Don't? No, they no. Nope. I did not know that. Yeah, I thought re- they did. Uh, earthquakes are not Richter scale anymore. Notice they don't. They don't call it Richter scale anymore. It's um. It's like Earth. The earthquake. They just call. It, they just say it's a seven point two or whatever. And it's not. Yeah. It's, it's no longer. It's no longer um, Richter. It's. Uh, like an earthquake intensity scale or something. It's hmm. which which is interesting because it makes it makes it difficult to compare earthquakes to historical earthquakes or things like that. And it's like, what do it you? Does because yeah. I always say, get ready, here comes the thunder. I'm about to bring the Richter scale five, baby. Yeah. And, it, and if you see someone notate around like a tornado, it's it's an EF five. It's not an F five. Mm. Let's see. And is that enhanced enhanced Fujita? Yeah, enhanced wow. Fujita scale. It measures the intensity of tornadoes See? in the United States and Canada. Wow, the rest of the world doesn't even use that. Why do we have? Why do we need a different scale for different countries? I don't. That <laughs> makes no sense to me. Because we're American, we got to do things differently. Yeah. So apparently the the you original Fujita scale that just is not good proves enough. that it doesn't matter what it is, Salesforce or anything else. I'm still two rebrandings behind. Yeah. That's Damn true. it. I know. So speaking of uh, 
Wait, you answer my question. Should well, I refrigerate or should I, should I no, pull it out? No, room temperature. <laughs> <laughs> Final. Fitbit. I think you're funny. You're just making work for me because I'm not going to let that I slide. I know Jer- Jeremy's marking stuff. That's right too now. crude. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, you mentioned Marco. Uh, did you? He, so he released this podcast authoring app he's been working on. Do you have you followed this at all? It's available. No. It's available. I think you can download it from. It's not in the app store because that's too much work and it's not selling it. You can just download it from him. But it's um, authoring, uh, kind of. So y- it takes your MP3 and along with, for example, minute, are you gonna are you gonna nuke his name too? No, You're, you get to say it, but I don't. Exactly. I can say what I want, and you can't. That's that's what happens when. I control the the recording here. So okay, so like right when I drop markers on things, that creates and and the same thing in uh, what's what's the other Mac um, like audio recording tool that's that Apple makes. Oh, Aud- GarageBand. Gar- um, no. Yeah, GarageBand. The other Band. one. No, no. The oh, uh, Logic. Logic. I think Logic. Yeah. Yeah. So they they can all export this. I guess they all use the same format. I'm not sure. Uh, the they're I guess what are they? They're markers, right? And mm-hmm. and so you can. You can give markers names in your in your whatever tool you're using, but what this uh, what this thing does that marker created is it looks at I guess your MP3 file with those markers because I guess they can or maybe it's a WAV file I can't remember but they, you can all these tools will we can somehow embed those mark that marker data in the WAV file, and hmm. so this thing goes through that WAV file, it builds, um, it turns those into chapters. And chapter markers. And you can also like include your, like if you can have different images or, or content for each chapter, right? Because you know, when you get to a chapter in a podcast, oh. it can show different content on the screen at that point. That's actually pretty cool. And it does uh, a lot more work, but I wouldn't mind taking that on. That's exactly what we need is more work. But yeah, no. Well, yeah. Should. We can well, grow the audience with markers and custom images. Well, go, d- go download chapters. It. Go download and see if it's useful. It sounds like What's more work called? to me, but I don't know. I'm sure you can find it. Hmm. Did you see? Um, oh, speaking of polls, um, Matt Lacey did a poll. I think it was on Twitter. That's where I saw it. Oh, well, I don't get on Twitter anymore. I know, except when you do, like today or whenever that was. I did, and it was it. It there was like a ton of messages because it was been like a month or yeah, so. Twitter has a lot of messages on it. No, I mean like DMs and stuff, oh. or not not DMs where they uh, mentions, tags tag, mentions, okay. yeah. But he did a poll on Twitter, and it was basically like, "What IDE or whatever do you use for for uh, Salesforce work?" Oh, okay. And then he wrote a blog post up about it, and so I just, I kind of just right before we started, I I saw this and was reading it. So he says he's still using Maven's Mate, <clears throat> and he says he really likes Maven's Mate. It's he likes the UI, the way it works. Or no, I'm sorry, he says he really likes Sublime Text. Right, he likes the UI. Mm-hmm. Way. I I do too. That's kind of my main. It, uh, well, text I, editing I switched tool. to Adam, but Adam's based based on Sublime Text, so is it? Yeah, I mean, the, I hear people complaining about Adam more now. Well, the, the, I don't know why. It's not it's not based on it, like as in they ported it. It's it's like all the command keys oh, and okay. the feature set that they just supported. Adam supports, and that's what I use. So, um, he uses like some VI plugin for Sublime that he likes. Um, resource bundles are awesome. Okay, so he's using I guess uh, Maven's Mate will. Mm-hmm. Zip up your yeah. something in a directory. Um, I I can see that being useful. Usually, my what I uh, I guess what my version of resource bundles are usually more complicated. Like it's usually like you got to run a gulp thing or something to build all the oh, stuff. No, not for me. I use eliminated cloud and resource bundles. Yeah. And does that will that run? Because again, my my resource what is my static resource. Oh, file? you have to run like a bunch of compile. Yeah, like yeah. You have to take yeah. your SAS and compile it exactly. to CSS. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I'm not doing that. Okay. 
And I don't know if those will do that or not. If that's if you can say probably hey, what run I would this. do is I'd run my SAS command or compile command in this in this case, and then save my bundle, compile my bundle to Salesforce. Well, I think the way that I do it, and I don't have a project right now where I'm doing that. Uh-huh. Um, but what I've done before is I have like yeah, it's like a, a gulp or something that creates the static resource, mm-hmm. but then it puts it in the directory in the right place, and you can have illuminated cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, automatically send that to Salesforce when it changes, right? right? So I don't have that. There's no separate step of turning that into a static resource or anything. I mean, the, the script... Well, it's IntelliJ that's... You're yes, it's commit, IntelliJ yeah. that... that Well, it's, it's illuminated cloud slash IntelliJ, whatever, that sees that the static resource file mm-hmm. has just been replaced with a new one. And you tell it to and build. It, no, it, it does it. It's a, it'll send it. You can have it send it automatically. That's, right, a, but, that's an, an, an illuminated cloud feature. I've also, before illuminated cloud, I had, um, as a part of my... Gulp script. Um, in fact, and I was using, um, it was one of um, Kevin O'Hara's projects, one of his, I don't know if it was DMC or one of these, um, it was like a, like a node Salesforce thing. Mm-hmm. But I would just, in the Gulp, there was an option, like one of the one of the targets or whatever is, you know, not only build this, but also just go ahead and send it to Salesforce. And so it does it in all one fell swoop, basically. It does, right. doesn't even require the ID to do it. But anyway, okay, let me continue. Uh, so number four, it ain't broke, right? So Maven's bed ain't broke. Keep using it. To me, for me, it was completely broke, but I'm sure I was doing something wrong. Uh, and then last one was downtime is expensive. Um, yeah, it doesn't take long to get a new ID set up, but it'll take me some time to adjust. Actually, it does take, a, I would say, a long time. In fact, that's that's one thing that I guess is a, a, a it's kind of a double edged sword for eliminated cloud is because IntelliJ is not a wasn't designed for Salesforce work. You know when. Um, when, when you sit down to make something like IntelliJ, like Scott, or uh, like Illuminated Cloud, that went, like Scott did, he and he did a good job of this. You, he fits into the way IntelliJ works, right? He's he writes, he's using that IntelliJ's framework mm-hmm. to build out his app to fit within the IntelliJ way of doing things, right? And so, if you're not familiar with IntelliJ as an IDE already, like how do you run a test? How do you? I mean, all these different things that Scott has integrated into, then you're gonna have to you're having to learn the IDE first, really, before you can. Right before you get, I would say, productive at it. So that's that's definitely a thing. Um, but he did. So the poll was uh, he got ninety seven votes, and, and Illuminate Cloud was leading the pack at forty one. Then you have the the Eclipse plugin at twenty six, uh, Salesforce's DX IDE, which I guess is the VS Code thing at twenty four. Yeah, and then Welcome. Which switch. I think Eclipse is going away, and it's going to be focused on Art- the Visual Studio Code plugin. Yeah, I guess. I mean, like all the new DX stuff is going to be on the Visual Studio Code, right. and DX yeah. is kind of the future of their IDE support. It's a part of it. Yeah, it's the developer experience. Right now, it's just deployment and packaging, but it's going to hopefully evolve into more developer centric stuff. Well, any uh, my point is, I guess any IDE though still needs to. I mean, there's um, there's editor support for Apex and Visual Force and all that, which is. Which is actually not part of the DX project. There's the metadata API and tooling API, which are there's a compiler as a service type thing coming out, right? I saw that. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know much about that, but apparently, like you basically com- you call the server to compile, and it comes back. It's not like a real push or something like that. Or hmm. I don't know. I don't know the details. Um, but anyway, he's uh, let's see. What else is he saying here? I don't know what the really the conclusion is. I just I just um kind of come across this article, but I thought it was interesting. Illuminate Cloud seems really doing really well. We have a we are, we, we, we are, have a new version that we're all oh, that's true. Uh, waiting for, that's right? right? I meant to I meant to kind of segue into that. Yeah. 2.0. And I know it's just any it's one of those, you know, any day now things. Yeah. It's like, you know, I think Scott's going through the thing where like the last ninety nine percent 
I'm so doing that right one, now too. <laughs> the last one percent of the project takes thirty percent of the time. I think I said this earlier, but you you turn the corner on this project that you're working on, you think, oh, the finish line is only two blocks away. But those, that two blocks away is like on a ninety degree angle hill that you have to climb. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's just still a lot of little little things. It's those little things that you have to tackle. Yep. You've got all the kind of big stuff, the mechanics, the architecture worked out, but then it's all these little tedious little things that you have to kind of knock out before you get there. And those things and you can't just will plan, wear at you. You can't plan for those other than to know that there's just going to be a lot of them there. And yeah. so just add add some some increased factor yeah. to to account for all those things that can't be that can't be individually accounted for. I think the other thing that happens because this is happening to me right now is the the urge to refactor because you get to these little things and you're going, man, that's tedious. I shouldn't have to do it this way. So then you want to refactor it so that you don't have to do it that way. And and so I get to this point where I want to refactor too many things because I get to this point where there's all these little tedious things and I realize I shouldn't have done it that way and I want to refactor. But I have to get past that finish line, and then I can start thinking about refactoring. I'm just kind of reading through more of what Matt wrote here, and he's 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 kind of in the same situation I'm in. Like he needs he needs cross platform, which I really don't care that much about. But I think I think he's wanting. I know he's. I think he's primarily Mac, but I think he also likes the idea of being able to do it on Windows too. Hmm. Um, and he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to go to Salesforce's ID yet because I. I think we'll have kind of a bad taste in our mouth for for that stuff. Well, he definitely says, you know, nothing Eclipse. He won't use anything Eclipse. He's allergic to it, and I, that's kind of where I am too. But uh, but uh, I don't know. It's, it's not Eclipse's fault. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I totally blame Eclipse. Yeah. You? Oh yeah. I mean, I just I just don't think Salesforce was able to keep up with Eclipse, and they they changed that thing. Constantly. I mean, I don't like Eclipse for Java development, which is its main use case. So I mean, I'm not, I'm not a Java developer, so I don't know. But I I did kind of do some other projects in it mm-hmm. that they, they were kind of Java related. I'm not, I'm not a Java programmer, but I fumbled my way through it. Um, and things responded better. Things worked better in that environment than they did when I was using the Salesforce IDE plugin. So I feel like there, there's Wait, part... Like, I'm, I'm like, confused I, on which environment worked better. I feel like Eclipse is very geared towards Java, and so any efficiency yes. and productivity is geared towards that. So when they tried to shoehorn the Salesforce IDE into it, it just did not work very well. It was very cumbersome. It was very tedious and things just did not work right. There's quirks everywhere here okay. and there. Yeah. And I, um, and you know, the thing with, with IntelliJ is it's controlled by a company. So all of the core stuff is managed by them. You know, they, they do, they, they control all the releases, make sure there's a release train where like everything's compatible. Whereas in the Eclipse world, I mean, even the Java support for Eclipse is a plugin. Everything's a plugin. Yeah. And so, and it turns out, you know what, to do a typical Java project, it requires, you know, a, a couple of dozen plugins. And oh, the, updating and installing on Eclipse. Oh, is and, and, the, and you have to get the update site and you, and you never know, you never know. Marker. Um, oh. You never know which, um, you, you never know which, thing, I never know which, which build to download. Like, why are there so many right. builds to download? I don't know. I want Eclipse. Yeah. Why are you making this hard on me? Yeah. And IntelliJ is just incredibly easy. And I always thought I was just dumb. I was like, okay, uh, I don't know what version uh, that is. Maybe I should know. But yeah, I mean, it, you, you when you go to update, you get this this ID, this little dialogue that pops up and you have to know what all these different things. I'm like, okay, I guess you say you need it. So I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to download and install it. It's funny. As far as DX, I mean, I've, I see on Twitter, like, like a lot of people who I guess are ostensibly developers are saying, oh, like DX is so amazing. And they're, you know, doing these obvious Tweets that are that are like DX my Ohana. No, they're they're um, <laughs> they're 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 retweet bait is what they are. Um, 
and and then you've got guys like Lacey who here who uh, is saying you know he's like DX is something that I really I really want to adopt, but the downtime involved in the switch is too just too great right now, and so I I definitely sympathize with that. I'm kind of have the same thing, and also you know when I looked when I did take some time to look at DX, I mean again I'm I'm very excited about it. like the the aesthetic of the command. Well, there's parts of this that I got I don't like like I don't I don't understand this like separating you know like a, a five long five commands by colons and everything I'd. I don't quite get that. That's kind of a Heroku thing, I think. I don't know, but but in, in general, just the the whole the whole philosophy behind it of of having source driven development, which is what most people just call development, um, mm-hmm. but making Salesforce development more like traditional development. I'm I'm totally behind that. Really love like everything I've seen come out of that. All the stuff, every talk that Wade uh, his Wade Wagner has given, it just it's right. It's like it hits all my all my points. I love it. Um, but uh, when I looked at it, it seemed to be, and you nailed this before I did, before I realized it, it really was kind of limited to people doing package development. And, and, and still, to this, ISV side still to this day, I see yeah. people saying, yeah, you really kind of need to break your org up into packages. And that's, here's the thing. Like, if you didn't design it that way, I, I'm looking at some of, the, some of the orgs I worked in long-term. And especially if, you're, if you didn't have absolute monopolistic control over the org, right? There's no way you're... I mean, I don't think there's any way to break that up into packages. And so if that's a requirement, then that's kind of a problem. But but I see the wisdom in that. I see the wisdom in, in taking these... Taking your... What is Me too, your, which is why I've been asking for packages forever. Yeah. What, what I, is I, your Salesforce? The choir, what yeah. is your conglomerate Salesforce implementation and breaking it up into these, these modular applications? Because here's another thing I, I've kind of recently... I'm telling on myself, but recently discovered is the advantage of um, permission sets. Um, traditionally, I would design some functionality and say, okay, in your world, you probably deploy everything. But in my world, we don't deploy everything. We deploy what I built. Okay. And so that means that uh, because, again, I know you're going you're gonna to hate on this, but because changes to profiles are still happening in production or in other environments and they're not controlled and they're not a single flow direction from one, one endpoint to another. Right. Uh, I can't, I can't say, okay, here's my customizations. Now deploy all the permission sets for, for all, or all the permissions for these profiles over as well so that everyone has the right access. Yep. Um, so what I'm finding is, is the better way to approach this, at least for me and the style of the products that I'm doing is that, and I do like this from one perspective, but hate it from another perspective is that for some of these customizations I'm doing, I'm advocating for a permission set for that for that specific functionality. Mm-hmm. And that means that I can deploy a permission set that already has the permissions, and now people just get added into that permission set to say, have access to this, uh, I don't know, order information inf- system that I built. Right. Um, that can get out of hand if you're building a permission set for every little customization you're doing. Yep. But if you're able to kind of segment your application into these, these blocks of functionality, this is the order system, this is the I don't know, service system, this mm-hmm. is that. And, and rather than modifying individual permissions, you create a permission set and add people into that. It's turning out to be a better model. Um, so I do see some wisdom in that. But again, taking these... What, exist- using permission sets? Well, no, I'm taking this group of code and trying to virtually kind of wrap it into this kind of module, essentially. Saying, okay, this set of code means this, and this set of code means this, and attach that as a permission set that it controls... What who has access to that to that product? Sure, I mean, and one of the things, one of the main things I've been cl- complained about when it comes to the lack of packaging or namespacing is that there's nothing you can do to prevent code from 
forming dependencies on other code. Oh, yeah. And well, so... I mean, there are things you can do, but... No, you can't. How can you? Abstract everything. Abstract, they can, abstract they can for, the world. They can, John, they can still deform... They can form dependencies under abstractions. That's what I'm saying. Like, you still... Mm. You, you can't prevent it. And so you end up with, instead of a nice-looking dependency graph, which is an important thing in software engineering, especially when you're doing something other than just like little quick little scripty things, um, you, you really have just not had... You can't do that. There's no such thing as, you know, package privates. <laughs> Private packages. <laughs> and so, and, and, and right, so you, you basically, you, you, you haven't been able to control that. And so now they're saying, oh, well, just turn, turn your code into packages. Well, I can't because look at the, look at the dependency graph. You yeah. can't. It's a bowl of spaghetti. How do you take a bowl of spaghetti and turn it into blocks? You, you find it's your too spaghetti late. that, too that intertwines and create yeah. a core, and then every, everyone depends on that core. And, and, and the other thing is, like, the whole reason they're suggesting that is because of limitations in DX's ability to properly wield the metadata API. They're not saying that mm-hmm. because that's the right thing to do. We've been asking for, some of us have been asking for that forever. We know it's the right thing to do. But we still have the problem of DX doesn't solve the metadata problem. I still, you know, the, the problem of, like, how do I just get all the metadata from my production org, right? And then how do I Without get the how do, and, timing out? Why the why the hell does it time out? Or, yeah, or you have to split it, or or uh, yeah, and then and let's say you're going to push that into a sandbox, right? I mean, well that that's that's not going to go into a sandbox. I mean, Salesforce so often can't even take the metadata it produced. You go to plug that into a vanilla sandbox, that exact build, that exact metadata, and it will fail for a thousand different reasons. Yeah. And well, also, I, I think I think that, that, but that's why they're saying, oh no. Well, the problem is you're trying to deploy your whole org. Uh, just take a subset of it and try to deploy and make it reckon all these little subsets, and you can work with one at a time. They're saying that not because that's the way you should have done it. Well, that's arguable, but they're saying that because you you simply cannot take a reasonably large org and get everything and get all your metadata. That's the number, challenge number one, and yeah. then get that into a sandbox. DX does not solve that. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think. The crux of it all is that the metadata API cannot scale. It never has been able to scale. Now, it's, it's always been for, been built, or at least works well for the, for companies that are doing small customizations. You know, edge cases where you know the UI couldn't point and clicky couldn't couldn't handle it. But now we're in enterprise territory, and now we're we're in people that know software engineering and know how to build stuff, and they need a lot of classes, they need namespaces, they need organization in their code, and we're trying to implement that stuff. And that means that we have a ton of classes. Yep. I mean, I can tell you for the, some of the stuff I've been building recently, the 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 integration program I've been building, that's expanded to just thousands and thousands of lines of code and hundreds upon hundreds of classes just to do this the right way so that I have the proper abstractions so that things are built. You're well building, enough, you're building software. Only, I mean, not yeah. only for things to function, but for me to be able to maintain it. Yep. You know, or or to be able to extend it in the future. I mean, that requires a certain level of abstraction. And Salesforce has yet to provide proper tooling for that, so we're all just kind of, kind of monkeying our way through it. Yeah, I mean the, the lessons that I've learned on on production projects, uh, where you're basically you're doing ongoing development and deploying r- regularly, like on a on a release cycle, mm-hmm. is um, deploy often. We so we got you know I mean, on I've really gotten aware that I, I'll basically try to feature I don't, feature flag everything. Is that see what it's that called? has its own issues. Every, well, again, what did I said earlier, software en- software engineering is all about making trade-offs. Well, that's not even a trade-off because what if you have to refactor something? What do you mean, what if I have to refactor? 
Well, okay. okay. When, so I refactor. When, when you have to refactor something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You've already deployed that, deployed that into production. Now you have all these dependencies on that code, and now you have to find a way to, to kind of deploy a refactory. So re- refactoring is is a challenge in Salesforce, but then also deploying that refactor is actually the bigger challenge. I mean, you talked about that last, I think on the last podcast, where you had a page that couldn't deploy because the dependency in the way it was, I guess the order of operations uh, in the yeah. deployment that, cycle. No, that's just that's just a bad deployment bug. That's a bad. It's a. It's not, I feel like it's a compiler. It's a link. It's a, like a linker bug. Yeah. And but either way, I mean yeah. that that exists. So that means that your refactoring, your ability to refactor, is hindered by you deploying often. It, it's almost like you should not deploy until you know everything is perfect, and then you deploy because yeah. refactoring that crap is going to take you. It's going to be that much more of a headache. Yeah. And I mean, there's again, there's. I wish I had a great answer for that. There's not. But I do know one thing that's a bad thing to do, especially again on a on a org that's already in production that you already have lots of users on or maybe you're running communities and you have thousands of those users and everything mm. is is um is not releasing often because the bigger that ch- when you deploy and again this is this is a situation where we're doing we're using continuous integration kind of automated as much as possible automated deployments you know kind of one click deployments that check out from check out from master do a full you know build of any static resources all that stuff yeah. And and then and then builds a it, basically it's got it gets kind of like a, a a step a stage one build of your entire org, but then it looks at what's in production or whatever org you're deploying to, and mm-hmm. determines what it needs to delete. So it, it builds that destructive change. It's it's kind of it's it's real. I mean, I don't know. It's the closest you can get. It's still it's still extremely like uh, rudimentary. It's yeah. or just super ghetto. I don't know how to describe it, but. Because, I mean, still, there's still so many things that can, can and do go wrong. But anyway, so then you have like a stage two build, which it, it's including, it's looked at the destination it's going to and figures out what's different, how, what it needs to, because again, that's how you deploy to Salesforce. You kind of, you kind of deploy a diff almost. You can't just say, oh, here's what I want my Torah org to look like. I'm going to just drop that, drop that jar file in. You know, you can't do that. You have to like say, add this class, modify this thing, rename this to this, yeah. delete this class. You have to like, you have to tell it everything to do. Yeah. And so it would build that and then it would deploy that. And and the more frequent you do that, then the the lower chance there is of something going wrong. If you, you know, if you're only deploying like once a month and you've got a couple, you know, a few developers or a team that's that's working a lot, uh yeah, and you, yeah you're going to run into some big problems. I mean, that, that makes sense because I mean, a lot of times with these if you're waiting too long to deploy, there, there's a greater chance that you're going to miss something. Not everyone's yes. logging what changes right. they need to make. Or well, what, they should what's, be. What's, they should be. Well, you track all your metadata. That's why I track all metadata. Not everyone's tracking all their metadata. Not everyone is logging, you know, if they're not tracking, logging what changes they make. Because yeah, no one, no one's not everyone every is, yeah. is aware of what's approved to be deployed. Yeah. Maybe they are logging, but they're not sure what's been approved and what dependencies that has before they can deploy. So this is why you have a... Yeah, you have continuous integration and you've always got a build sandbox that every time someone commits code, it goes to the build sandbox. Right. And you get in there and you look and you see if if things work. Oh, mm-hmm. you forgot to you forgot to add your permission set. No wonder the build failed, right? So then oh dummy me, right? Then so you so then you go and you add your permission set, you you commit that and push that up to your GitHub or whatever. And then the build runs again and then, and then it, it's fixed that time. But so right. you but you're finding out immediately because as soon as the build breaks and it can't deploy it, you get a notification, right? And you don't you don't you're not waiting until three weeks later and you find out you got 150 problems that have accumulated over the past three weeks. Yeah. Well permission set is a bad example. There's but there's all kinds of things that you can forget per- to do yeah. or whatever. I mean that that only works if you're coding against profiles and permission sets and 
run at doing your system.run as on all these different profiles and systems. I mean, that, that that's still a gap that's hard to solve. It is. And, and you'll, but you'll, you like, if, again, when you kind of, if you do like a QA thing or whatever, you'll, you'll log into the build sandbox or QA sandbox and you'll see that, oh, I can't even see those new fields. That's because someone forgot to update a profile or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the joys of Salesforce. Development. By the way, don't be an admin in your build sandbox. <laughs> don't be an admin in your build sandbox. Yeah, what do you you mean? can see everything by default. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. You log in as other users. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's useful. What else, John? Well, we had some people leave Salesforce this we, last week. We talked about that, right? No. Oh, that more. happened after the fact. More. Shauna Wolverton? We already talked about this. We time. didn't talk about that. Yes, we did. No, we didn't. Oh, yeah, we did. That's right, we did. But we it's know like, where she's going now. Yeah. We know where at least Shauna Wolverton yeah. went. And that is... Uh, Planet, the right? planet, yeah. or planet, planet. Yeah, so they're they're a company that does satellite imaging. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Go from Salesforce CRM business software to to selling products. Managing. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, does this planet have? I mean, I don't know and much about their business. They have more of an upside than Salesforce does. I mean, I don't know. Oh yeah, satellite data. That's big. It's been around for a long time, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's opportunity to. There's not too many to, people um, in the satellite imaging business. You no. have to be able to send millions of dollars into space. No, your buddy Elon's doing that every day. Yeah, he's got billions of dollars. Yeah. Um, no, he. Well, he lot, wants to be the first scale. He's using a lot of our dollars. I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about leasing a Tesla. By the way, <laughs> are you serious? Kinda. And how, why would you say that? We've talked, we've been talking about cars for the past three weeks. All of because a sudden, you mentioned, mentioned Elon and, and how okay. he makes his money off of subsidies. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm thinking about getting some of that subsidy money too. Did you see that uh, Dallas has topped the list of best cities for jobs in 2017? Is it because of Frisco? And the no, growth? no, no. Um, that, I, don't know if they miss, I don't even know if they mentioned Frisco here. There's, um, let's see, the Dallas Plano Irving metropolitan area. So just basically Dallas and North Plano, I guess, or, or yeah. North Dallas. Uh, best yeah, list of best cities. I guess uh, it says move over San Francisco. Was San Francisco on the top of that list before? I guess so. I don't know. Really? Yeah, it's a region. Let's see. We're beating out San Francisco. Unlike the tech-driven Bay Area, Dallas's economy has multiple points of strength, including aerospace and defense, insurance, financial services, life sciences, data processing, and transportation. You know, Uber is going to do their Uber Air or whatever here. Really, and I believe one of the main touch, one of the main places is that is at the Star. They're going to have yeah. So you want to take a helicopter ride somewhere? You need to get from. I want to take a heli ride. You need to get from here to Arlington fast or something. I don't know. Oh yeah, I'll do that. But I heard Dallas is going to be their first first uh, place for it. I'll do that. That'd be cool. Yeah. So we have uh, we're a cheaper alternative to coastal cities. We have lower taxes and generally more friendly business climate. Yeah. Texas is awesome. What can I say? Not that you're biased. We we can also secede if we want to. Is that true? <laughs> I need to talk to a lawyer about that. I've I heard. think it's in our our uh, our constitution. So, so that we can. So no. basically, so we're saying we struck a different deal than all other states did when we joined the union. Like I think we have so. a different. Can I see that contract that we so. signed with, with the? <laughs> I think so. Is there a contract? Do we like sign a contract? Hey, we're gonna. I think so. Uh, I yeah. think we have. I think each state, be, as part of the union, has its own contract. I feel like that should be a standardized contract. You shouldn't be each state shouldn't be able to like strike its own deal. <laughs> of course, as soon as you get states in, states in the United States still have power. That's true. We're supposed to have almost all of it, except for the 
few enumerated powers in the Constitution that you know, all others are supposed oh, to be. Oh, we screwed that up. Uh, we, yeah. yeah, we screwed that up. Thanks, yeah. thanks, judicial system. <laughs> uh, anyways, well, uh, welcome this- to Law This Week in Law, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Right, we actually have two topics from the community that we need to get to. Okay, let's do that because we are... Stop talking. Okay. Uh, this one's anonymous. Did not, did not give us permission to use his name. Okay. Oh, we uh, already know it's a man. Because you said oh, his. Oh, damn it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a he, she. Uh, okay. He, she. Uh, this is from he, she. <laughs> uh, this question is for you, Jeremy. Okay. Uh, in fact... And I've not seen these, so this is it, totally... Yeah, th- this question this is, could be bad. is is written weird because it, I feel like it was written to me to ask you. So okay. I'm going to read this the way they wrote it. So that's why it's going to sound weird. All right. So he doesn't try for full unit test coverage, which I share his philosophy. Parentheses, that is integration tests are better trade time, effort, money. Uh, do I understand correctly? He's, he is still achieving at least the 75% min coverage. Or if not, how is he addressing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. So let's again let's revisit a couple of things here. Almost, almost uh, every time you hear a Salesforce person talk about unit tests, they're not talking about unit tests. That was a point. They're talking about integration tests and functional tests. Not true. No, it is. I mean, I, I, I said almost every time. Almost okay. Almost every time. I have some true unit and, test cases. And here's the other thing: it's actually not even possible to do unit tests in Salesforce because when the test starts, a transaction begins. There's nothing you can do about it. Mm, true. So there really are no true. That's that's my point. True. Dan. Now the second point I need to make is the fact that uh, the the instead of doing actual unit tests, even even though a transaction starts, right? Instead of focusing on um, you know having every class basically be the unit that I'm testing, mm-hmm. I test more end to end. I do more end to end testing, more f- like functional or sort of acceptance type testing. But that doesn't mean and, that your code does get executed. Oh yeah, I'm still getting. I'm still yeah. getting. You know what. You would what you know you if you do the thing the test execution in Salesforce it's going to say I've got you know eighty eighty five ninety percent coverage or whatever again what most people in Salesforce would call unit test coverage so but, so but for that, you for you a scenario might be create the opportunity that would be your integration test and it would go through and and test creating the opportunity and line items and any other logic that happens there it's still kind of executing that code but say if I was to do quote unquote unit testing I will say did this you know, I would have a test specific for the opportunity for the opportunity line item that says, okay, did I create create this line I mean, item you're that's already of this talking type? about database stuff. So that already that's not even a unit test. Okay, bear with me. Okay, bear I'm, with I'm me. trying to, but I don't because I think I think what the confusion is that people are thinking unit testing as in testing a very specific set of functionality that exists in a class. So maybe I have a class that knows how to treat products. It knows how to take a product and apply, say, a discount logic to it or business logic to okay. it. And so whenever an opportunity creates a line item, I have to make sure that if it's line item X, that it applies a 10% discount. If it's, if it's line item Y, it applies a 20% discount. And so my unit test would be, okay, I'm going to create a line item. I'm going to pass this line item to my class and it's going to decrement my amount by 10% because that's the discount. Mm-hmm. And it's going to, you know, and the, it's going to decrement 20%. Or yep. if I pass some unknown, it's not going to decrement. That would be my unit test. And so what you're saying is that you're not going to do that unit testing you're going to do an integration test that says, here's my account, here's an order, process it, and it's going to go, and it's just going to do its normal thing. You're not testing specific individual scenarios at a granular level. You're testing at a more high level. And because you have an, an account of type X, which produces a product with a discount of type X, that should execute that code. 
but you're not specifically testing for that coat to run. I, w- I would still probably, ha- and I'm trying, I'm struggling to follow your example, but I would still probably have the same assertions you do, uh-huh. um, just and and and, and to, again trying to stay with your example and, and comparing these two different styles. I might um, actually insert those records in the database and then query them back out after the triggers have run, right, mm-hmm. and confirm that that your price, your product pricing thing did what it was supposed to or whatever. Right. But your initiation point is I created an order or I created an opportunity. Whereas my initiation point as a unit test, quote unquote unit test, traditional, my thought. Oh, stop with those. Cause you do them. You're, you're, you're so, you're so weird fingers. Because you won't let me use unit testing. <laughs> no, like, just, that's not a unit test. That's an integration test. So stop saying. So well, it, no, what you described, I think if I'm hearing you right, is a unit test. I'm, what I'm saying is unfortunately, it's still going to be slow because it's still firing up the database and creating a transaction where it's yeah. But I'm just saying I'm testing very specific rule sets of functionality. I'm saying I'm at the product level where and I'm testing that in isolation. Yeah. Whereas you, as integration testing, won't test that at a granular level. You'll test it at a higher level from a higher level. It's a really reductive. It's this is hard to explain. It's a really reductive way of describing it. I think, but kinda. You're kinda right. Okay, um, I'm, I'm testing that. I'm, I'm more likely to test the inputs and outputs of the system. And, and again, like if, let's say that I've got some parser, a tokenizer parser class, something that's got, or let's say I've got an iterator, a custom iterator of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather just make an API. I'd rather, you know, let's say that you know, um, I can call into. Uh, I've got an API, like I've exposed or something, or like a REST API or something. Yeah. And I know that I can make an API call and send in some data, and the res- the answer I get back should be, I know what the answer should look like that mm-hmm. I get back. And the parser and all these other things do their job right, I'm going to get the right answer. And that's really kind of all I care about. Mm. See, I want to know that the parser knows what it's doing. I want to know that, I don't know, some string split but, function knows what but it's I doing. Do, because if not, I, wouldn't got the, I, wouldn't, I would have not gotten the right answer back. Yeah, but I, I feel like if I beat up those guys at a more granular level... I don't have to worry about them. No, you, I, you, th- I think where you you you're, still you st- okay. So I, I even if hang on, hang on, even if you do full unit test coverage, you still should be doing. You still have to do functional tests. You still yes. should be doing that. Yes, and so that's my point. If you're already doing that anyway, yeah. Then if you get the right answer back, then you got the right answer. The, the things did their job right. Yeah, I, I think I think what I'm focused on when I do that kind of stuff is regression testing. I want to know that. I didn't break something. So if I make a change at a at a more lower level, I want to make sure everything else works. Your and functional I, test will fail. You won't get the right I, answer. Yes. And I if guess. you do get the right answer back, then obviously you didn't break anything. Yeah. If you true. can, if you can listen, if you can insert your line items and then all your triggers run, and then you look at the line items, you query them back out, and everything did what it was supposed to do. I get. I guess for me, if it's you more got, of if knowing you get where the, the right answer is. Well, that's if I, okay. If I, if I get a failure right. at my top no, level and you, my you lower level, then I know where the problem is. You just hit the right point. What unit tests will get you? See, with functional tests, I, you'll you'll know when something goes wrong, whether you have unit tests or functional tests, assuming right. you've got good coverage, right? Yeah. Unit tests will tell you closer to where the problem is, what yeah. caused it. The functional test will say, It'll, "I'll get back the wrong answer," but now I got to figure out why did I get that wrong answer it was. Did a trigger not fire? Was my parser wrong? I don't know because I didn't. I didn't have unit test coverage for that parser. Yeah. I had integration test coverage for the for the something that included the parser. So I we'll both know that something went wrong. Yeah, which is the most important thing. But you with you, all your seven thousand <laughs> unit test classes that which take forever to run because they're still run in a, an integration test context. 
mm-hmm. you will you you will have a unit test also that fails that says, oh yeah, this this one parser method failed, and I'll have to figure that out. I'll have to figure, oh well, why did I get the wrong answer back from this API call? Yeah. Again, it's a trade off. This is all about trade offs, and for this platform and the, this this tooling, the way everything works, this is just what I've over. Lots of years and doing things, trying things, all yeah. kinds of different ways. This is kind of just where I've landed, and it's not an absolute. It's like it's not like I don't. There's there are times when I'm like when it just makes sense to do unit you know, tests for a class, like mm-hmm. it's important enough, or or it's something that is going to. I know it's going to be an area that's going to experience some churn, and so I want to have unit tests coverage for it, so that I so that because I know it's going to be failing, and so I want to just go ahead and and do, write this unit unit test now, so that when it fails, we'll know where it's failing and why it's failing. Yeah. So it just again, there's no absolutes. It's it's kind of a mix, but I've definitely my mix has shifted to a lot more functional tests and integration tests than unit tests. And that but makes again, sense. To be clear, I'm still getting as much coverage as you're getting. Yeah, right. Yeah. We're still covering the same number of lines of code. That, that's probably an important distinction, is that I I might know closer to where well, and that only assumes I have the right scenarios in my unit test as well. I mean, I might have to create a new scenario to figure out, like, I may, I may have to create a scenario in my unit, my higher level unit test to figure out where that failed because obviously if it's in production, it, it passed at some point. Yeah. So that right. means I'm still having to create a unit test for that scenario, run it, and see where the failure happened. Mm-hmm. So e- either way, I think we're both still in a good position. Yep. And this and this also, I always, you know, I always, always love bringing this up. Even if you've got great tests and your tests all pass, and you're you know you're such you know so you're such a, a, a craftsman of your software engineering skills, right? Um, <laughs> just because you built the thing right, yeah, doesn't mean you built the right thing. Yep, it's true. It's a good one, huh? Yeah. It's an old oldie but goodie. <laughs> <laughs> all right, moving on. This one uh, we do have a name. This one's from Stephen No E. No, he confirmed. I'm pronouncing it right. It's not no, it's no E. Okay. Uh, if Salesforce had the time to pick their next CEO, meaning Benioff isn't push, pushed out immediately because of harassment allegations. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those are getting thrown around thrown around left and right. Yeah. N- not to diminish those claims at all, just that there's a lot going around. Yeah. yeah. Man, us guys are bastards. No, no. Man. We're, we're, we are. It's no I was, I was, no thinking, I was thinking the world had changed, you know, you know, the, everything's fair, but... Damn. Yeah. Damn. Yep. Anyways, <laughs> uh, who do you think would they would target or would make the most sense? To replace Benioff? Yeah. Well, I mean, our theory this whole time has been that potentially Keith. that's, yeah, Keith. Keith Block. I think Keith is being groomed. I think I think he's currently being groomed to be the next CEO. I think Benioff will still be on the board. I think, uh, I think he will move into politics because I think he enjoys the attention and the power. Wait, he's not already in politics? He just hasn't been elected yet. To his, foot, his foot is in the door. <laughs> it sure is, isn't it? He's just making friends right now. <laughs> right. And eventually he will leverage those friends to to, to amass political power. Um, uh, I don't know. Ellison, still very much corporate powerhouse, still enjoys the power. I'm not a Republican. I'm an American. Um, so I, I think if, if, if Benioff went full, full on just board member, he would still show up at Dreamforce to make speeches and talk about the products and all those kind of things, but I think in terms of the day to day running, I think I think Keith is the guy. I wonder. Do you think Salesforce would would ever promote or break someone into be a co CEO along with Benioff? Uh, that's hard to say because I think I think from a social political aspect, that's possible. Like they might bring in a woman to come in and do that, or they might even bring in a woman to be CEO. 
But I think I think in terms of like practicality of who exists at Salesforce right now that could take on the role, I think it's Keith. But I wouldn't put it past them to try to seek out a woman, um, a minority woman, in fact, to try, try to take that position. Because yeah, I think they check all the boxes, right? Yeah. <clears throat> I, well, I'm not going to be that facetious about it, but I think I think in terms I, I of the social, meant, that's okay. There's social responsibility and their structure and the and Benioff's viewpoint. Well, that's why I'm saying Meg Whitman. Right? I think she's available now. Yeah, I think I think they would want to empower yeah. someone. It, that, that that that's the better way of putting it. I think they would want to seek to empower someone, and they would seek out to to find someone to empower. Yeah, but I think in terms of who's in the ranks right now, I think it's Keith Block. And it's it's always nice when you can promote from within to something like that and develop internal talent. Mm -hmm. I think the problem Salesforce has is they're they're so light on women at the management level. Yeah, they are. They really are. Even at the board level, they are. Yeah, I mean they've worked they've worked on that. They 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 did add I think a couple of women to their to their board. Um, They don't want to be too cynical, but they kind of had to. Give, given the given their women surge and, and all the grandstanding about that, so yeah. it's it's you kind of can't do that and not have any women on your board. Yeah. Well, all right, all right. Well, last thing, let's finish up because I got to pee. <laughs> TMI, John. That's always the reason to end the show, right? Because I got to pee. That's usually why we end it. Oh yeah. And which, thank God that you do have a tiny bladder because if not, <laughs> who knows how long these shows would go on? It'd be like four hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we got a review. Oh, okay. you. Well, yeah. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. Wow, I feel like we need to play some some music or something. It's been so long. <laughs> All right, so the title of this review is Enjoyable Salesforce Platform-Focused Podcast. Uh, this is from Hollywood 5001 in the U.S. I wish we knew who that was. I'm, we probably have seen their name, but you know, these, these iTunes, back to these Apple IDs, I hate Apple IDs, yeah. but... We don't know who these people are because they don't. It doesn't show their name. It just shows their like their their Apple ID username. Right. Well, if, if right. you're if you're listening to this Hollywood, whatever that was, let us know who you're actually <laughs> who you are. If you want to, if you don't want to, that's fine. Uh, so Hollywood says, I have recently started enjoying this podcast on my work commutes. I can't believe all the years I've been in in the Salesforce ecosystem. It's taken me this long to subscribe. If you're involved in the Salesforce ecosystem and want an entertaining, balanced, and Kool Aid parentheses, a.k.a. Ohana, free podcasts, look no further. Yeah, and that's that's good. I mean, we we, ha- we have our own ha- Ohana. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> uh, Except our Ohana is an army. We're aggressive. Exactly. It's not the nice Ohana. We don't walk around with the ukuleles and half naked. Salesforce calls theirs the Ohana, the friends and family, and we <laughs> yeah. call ours an army. Yeah. We've got, <laughs> we've got uh, RPGs. And quite, it's quite a distinction there. Artillery. <laughs> No. Well, yeah. thanks for the review. That's that's nice. And, that, and this is, you know, the, I, I feel like there's a lot of people, you know, there's 4 million developers out there, right? And we only have like a fraction of a percent that listen to this. Yeah. This podcast, well, let us know you're there. I think people don't know about it. That's why I'm always like, yeah. share us. You know, you got you to gotta share us on the socials. Although I do think if you go looking for a podcast, we're going to show up. Right? I mean, it's you can't look for a Salesforce podcast and not find us, you know? Yeah. I don't think anyway. I don't know. Maybe you could. Well, it's fun to hate on us, right? I guess so. Yeah. Well, if, if you want to introduce your own topics, you didn't like what we talked about, well, send us a topic that you want us to talk about. We enjoy doing that. You can do that by emailing us at info at gooddayserpodcast.com. Um, or you can go to our website, www.gooddayserpodcast.com and click on uh, send us a question. We have that? Yeah. There's a send us a question. Yeah. Oh, I didn't I didn't know we had a, a website for this. Yeah, we have a link. Wow, we give people so many options. Well, it just sends you to a page that says email us. <laughs> 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 I could make that better. <laughs> so many options. You could probably tweet at us too. Yeah. That would tweet probably us. work. Tweet? 
What's well, our? Uh, what do we? Oh God, we have that, that Twitter handle. Good, good day, day, sir. P D C S T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so if you can find that. If you can find that, you can tweet at us too. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for the reviews. Uh, more reviews are good. Five stars. Five star. All the five stars. That's such a pet peeve of mine when you like you go to the dealership <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah, you're gonna get a you're gonna get a survey," and we don't accept anything from about ten stars. I'm like, "Well, gee, did you so?" The fact that you just bias everyone like that and you guilt them into 10 stars, like <laughs> that survey is not helping you. You're giving less than 10 star experiences, but you don't know because you're telling everyone to give 10 stars. Yeah. But yeah, five stars. We only, we only accept five stars here at the Good Day Sir podcast. We reject all of this. <laughs> <laughs> join our Slack. Oh, yeah. The Slack. Join our Slack. We're, yeah, we're, we're above, we're, we've, we've surpassed the 300 mark, John. That's awesome. Although you know, I, I know people. People, we have people leave the Slack sometimes because I've I've seen the number go down before too. I, I think just people lurk and you know, I guess so. That's kind of thing. So uh, yeah, uh, that's on our community link on our website. Yeah, podcast dot com, yeah. and then uh, community. That's all I got. All right, me too. Let's get yeah. out of here. You can go to the bathroom. Oh, yeah, I'm about to burst. <laughs> and to that, I say, good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. <laughs>